I did a little reading this week, a little study on uh, kind of some of the background. Let me talk to you just a little bit. I, I've always been wondered, okay, how did Moses know this stuff, and why did he write it? Okay, if we believe that Moses wrote um, at least lion's share of the first five books of the Bible, why did he write it? Um, and, and so uh, l- let me deal with that just for a minute here. Um, I, I really believe, it, it, as I understand it, 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 as I understand God to a certain degree, God wants you to know who he is. Look at the little paragraph that I opened your outline with today. Uh, uh, whether we're talking about worship, which we'll do right after, um, in, in one setting or another right after uh, this time together, um, or whether we're talking about our own quiet time or whatever, uh, our lives are a, are a series of revelations and responses. God reveals himself to me, and it's my responsibility to respond back in appropriate ways. And so God, one of the things that we begin with, you and I would not know God if he hadn't revealed himself to us. Frankly, he does that a lot, and we're going to talk about this over these, these first couple of weeks. He does that a lot in, in what he has created. When I study, when I, when I dial in to God's creation, there's no other answer, is there? Then there's a creative, systematic, even loving God um, who, who is behind all of that. We're going to talk about that today. But he also reveals himself to us in this book. So Moses gets a chance to write some of these things down that have been carried for centuries before him in oral tradition. And he believed that what the Lord wanted to do, and the Lord was motivating him and inspiring him, to give a short factual explanation that would stand for the ages as kind of helping us understand God. It was important that the people of God knew his promises. It was important that even though they had had all these stories, that now they had a, a written, uh, rather factual account. Now, there's some things that you and I will be a little nervous about because it leaves out a lot of detail, and th- that's done intentionally. It, it's really more about the who than the how, and we'll talk about that. How did Moses know this stuff? Well, it had been passed down to him from his mother and dad. It had been passed to them from their mother and dad, been passed to them from their mothers and fathers. So this had been, had been passed down. The important things about God were known to God's people. And so Moses, who had the benefit, you remember, this wasn't, uh, this wasn't uh, accidental, I don't think. Moses, who had the benefit of Egyptian teaching, he had the benefit of a university education, believe it or not, uh, unique among the, the enslaved Hebrew people, obviously, uh, had the ability to write these things down. And he had learned his native language uh, from mom and dad. Remember that whole story of how uh, Moses ends up having his mother take care of him when he's a baby and when he's a boy. That's uh, just, and you think, oh, what, a, what an interesting coincidence. You know, they're just, there are very few coincidences in the Bible, it seems to me. 
And now he gets to learn Hebrew and gets to learn the stories from mom and dad. So I, I believe that it's important that you and I kind of think about that. He's revealed himself to us through the Bible. He's revealed himself to us, to us through creation. And the Genesis account stands in stark contrast, in my view, to uh, even if you study or if you hear about uh, you know, you're listening to something on A&E or on the History Channel, and they'll talk about, well, there were rival accounts of, of creation from, from uh, you know, the ancient Near East, and, and uh, this was just another one of those myths. Now, when you read those accounts and you read this account, they're starkly contrasted. There's a very different approach to this, and I want us to kind of deal with it a little bit today. Now, uh, Father Blair... Can I, can I get you to read the first two verses, which includes Dan's in the big inning? Okay, here we go. All right, now. I kind of started thinking about, okay, what do I need to know about creation? What is it just absolutely crucial, vital, that I need to know about creation? And one of the things that, that came to me is that five words, if I've got nothing else, five words are all I need to know. In the beginning, God created. Now, that's, I'm a simple kind of guy, and that's kind of simple for me. I guess you could argue that four words might be enough in the beginning God, you know. But, but I want to add that fifth because I think it's important that we need to know that those first five words are just absolutely jam-packed with meaning. Uh, they imply to, to me lots of theology. One of those things is, is uh, in theological terms, the solitariness of God. Uh, does that mean he's lonely? No. It means he's in a class by himself. He's all by himself. There's only one of him. Okay? Um, now, you and I know that he exists in a holy trinity, but yet there's God, the three in one. So the idea here is that God is in a, in a place and in a class by himself. Look, if you will, just turn over just real quickly to 2.4. Uh, there's an overview statement here by the time we get to chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, you could, would, would you argue with me that we've gotten a lot of detail for, if you've read this some this week, got a lot of detail for a... Uh, for a chapter and a couple of verses. And now there's this summary of what's going on. So if you'll, if, if you'll take it this way, um, uh, the, the, kind, the idea here is there is a span of events that's being covered here. Not just little individual things that are taking place. There's a, there's a time span. There's, a, there's, there's an arc of very important things that are taking place here. Um, would somebody turn to Isaiah 46 verse 9? John, would you mind to turn to that for us? Uh, it's, gonna, it's just got this beautiful language that helps us understand this uh, about the creation of the heavens and the earth and, um, 
that kind of fits in context of these first five words. Whenever you get there, John. I am, see the solitariness there? I am God, there's no other. There's only one. That's kind of the idea. And by the way, if you were a Hebrew, if you were um, a, a, a member of the family of faith, you would live every day with that presupposition because everybody else around you believed something else, that there were many. There is one. And he's good and creative and loving. Okay, so uh, there's kind of this idea here of a span of events covered in these first couple of chapters, and it's going to talk to us about um, it's going to talk to us about um, what kind of happens. God created the heavens and the earth. So the idea here is, if there's two words in Hebrew that have kind of opposite senses, what that means is all. So when you read the heavens and the earth, what, what that, the implication of that, when they would first read it, is, okay, he created everything. All right? Uh, there, there are lots of uh, ways that, that uh, uh, biblical language makes that happen. Here is a key distinction, though, that we get from the first two verses of the Bible. All right? Catch this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. So what... What the Bible goes after right from the outset is there are some who would believe that matter is eternal. Okay? The building blocks, the uh, primordial soup of creation, there are those who believe that that has always been. It's eternal. The Bible kind of goes after that thought. So what did God build the heavens and the earth out of? His word, nothing. Now that's creative. That's creative. I marvel uh, when, like my father-in-law in 1977-76, who spent a year and 2,200 hours taking a 55 Chevy and rebuilding it, holes in the holes in the. Uh, Fenders big enough to stick your head through. I'm looking at Larry because he would appreciate this. And so when Ken comes to school the second year of, of, our, uh, of our introduction, he brings this little red-headed sister of his with him. They're in a 55 Chevy that is better than new, Larry. Better than new. I'm, I'm impressed with those who can take raw materials and make something out of it. I'm impressed with a Marlene Foster who can do wonderful works of art. But how about making something out of nothing? Literally. Literally. There's only one who can do that. And there's only one who has done that. Matter is not co-eternal with God. So the idea here is, in the beginning, God, and you can put in parentheses, alone. Am I close, Paul? Okay. All right, so um, he used no method of trial and error. Let me try, no, that didn't work. Let me tear that up and start over. 
You ever write something and wad the paper up and throw it in the trash basket? That didn't happen in God's creation. Um, uh, there was no guesswork. There was no, it was not like an inventor who, um, what's the story of Thomas Edison? How many times did he try to make the electric light bulb before he got it right? None of that. All that divine wisdom that we talked about from the book of Proverbs last week was at work here in advance uh, that he called to being. Now, if you, by the time we get to verse 2, we may not get through, what did I put, 13 verses on here? We may not get that far, but that's okay. I, I'll be here next week, so okay. By the time we get to verse 2, and we can spend a month on verse 1, but by the time we get to verse 2, what you need to catch here is there is matter, there's stuff, there's the building blocks that he's spoken into being, but there's no light, there's no energy. Now think about that for just a second. So it's formless and void. There's, uh, God had created the heavens and the earth. He's, he's got stuff, but there's no form to it. Um, there is... A pervasive spirit, and if, if your Bible is like mine, the word spirit in verse 2 is capitalized. Is yours? Okay. That is a he, not an it. That's not a may the force be with you. Okay. That's a whole different idea. Don't, let, don't go there. I heard, uh, heard a guy preach when I was in college that you folks would recognize his name, who uh, kind of... Uh, talked about the Holy Spirit being, you know, it, it was 1970s and it was uh, right after the first Star Wars movie and he thought it would be real cute to, to do the let the force be with you, may the force be with you and talk about the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit's not a force, he's a he. he. He's a person. And he's brooding over matter here. It's kind of the thought here. Uh, not a force. Um, now, I'm curious because I want to know how you think. What are some specific things in creation that cause you to think about the creative God or to praise Him? What are some, some things that you see it and, and you would say, every time I'm there, it makes me just, it draws my mind heavenward. What would that be? Sunrise, Sunrise and sunset. Yeah, boy, I love it. The mountains, Skip, anytime I've been to your place, it's like, how can you ignore the creative ability of God? That is so different than here, dry and flat, you know, okay, and instead. And call it, Bill? Complex. By the way, they tell me if you, if you, uh, if you uh, have a, bent toward atheism or at least agnosticism, study the human eye. It's a computer you can't reproduce. Uh, what? Uh, all of it, really, and its inner workings. You're right. Uh, the doctors, uh, Larry, you got a couple things in your life where the doctors have been kind of baffled. Isn't it interesting, the intricacy of this machine that we live in, that he made. Okay, Karen, does I see your hand? Yeah. The order of everything. Yeah. 
Wow. You know what I found out Friday night? Mosquitoes fly, too, but they fly in disorder. They were all over me. Uh, doing some work on a car, and uh, uh, couldn't get anything done for squatting mosquitoes. I wish they were less organized, you know. So I'm loving these these things because we talk about we talk about um, um, species of animals. We talk about all these things. If you want to know about um, any kind of bird, ask Dr. John Fazard. He's kind of an uh, what would I call you? An ornith ornithologist? Would I call you that? Kinda, but it really does. He knows he knows what they all are and kind of what they do and how they act and you know that's not that that's that you know that. But isn't it wonderful that all of you have a different way of thinking about? God's creativity, majesty, really, in both things, skip big like the Rocky Mountains, both uh, things uh, vast and immense like Carol, the Gulf of Mexico that you and I like to go to, and the beach, but then things small and intricate that just worked with such amazing precision. Someone told the story years ago in talking about this. Uh, he talked about God as being a divine watchmaker. And he said, if you're out in a field and uh, you stumbled over a rock, you would not say, probably, how did that get there? <laughs> Rocks are out in nature, right? Even though they're very intricate too. But if on that rock there was a Rolex watch, you wouldn't say, that's coincidental, right? That just happened. Because that which is intricately designed implies a designer, right? Okay? Now, let that kind of let these thoughts kind of guide you, you and your worship over the next few days as you think about the majesty of God's creation that imply a majestic God. All right, now, let's go to the first day. Now, I've already been challenged uh, by a fellow who's a lot smarter than I who said, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to see what you're going to do with, with uh uh, there was evening and there was morning at first day. Is it 24, or, or each of the creation days, 24 hours? And I'm going to just kind of completely sidestep that, okay? Um, but we'll deal with it a little bit, okay? Um, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to say less than you want me to say about this. But what I want you to catch here, the important part of this, because uh, we're going to read verse 3, 4, and 5 in just a minute. What I want, to catch, want you to catch about this is that God constantly is saying, okay, and God said, and then it happens. God said, and then it was so. But an economy of words, to be sure, right? God said it, and it was so. Would somebody read verse 3, 4, and 5? Okay, 
Now, we're going to catch this darkness and light thing. Ellie, can I get you to go to John 1? I'm going to have you read 4 down through 9 in just a minute, okay? Now, uh, uh, one of the reasons I'm taking Ellie and you to the first chapter of John is some people call this the second Genesis. It's a, it's a different spin on the creation story that involves Jesus, and it's just wonderful. But, um, but I want you to see how this theme in John's coverage of creation is in, uh, this concept of darkness versus light. So let me, let me fill in your blank here. The important thing for you to note is we're talking about there was darkness and then there was light because God spoke it into existence. The important thing for you to notice is the contrast of darkness and light. So go to first, uh, John 1, verse 4, and read down through 9. Thanks, Ellie. Listen to Isaiah speak about this. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who call darkness light and light darkness. There is a contrast the Bible says, the gospel writer, John, says about Jesus, he brought light into the world. That sounds like the creator to me, doesn't he? Okay, so the idea here is there is a contrast. And by verse 4, God has given value to light. Catch it here as, as, as we read it. Uh, God saw the light was good and separated light from darkness. That was the implication that darkness was not good. Uh, there's idea, uh, good is given, uh, this value of good is given to light as contrasted with darkness. Now, right here is where we begin to get in this little bit of controversy over, um, uh, in verse 5, over the length of the day. Um, um, there are three ways to look at this. Let me, let me read it again here, verse 5. God called the light day. And called the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, those who believe in a literal 24 hour of 24 hours of creation will point to, okay, there was a day and a night, and it was a day, and it was a day. There are three ways the Bible looks at a day. Um, a day could be looked at as the part of this. Daytime, the idea of the part of a 24-hour period that is in light. Now, the problem with that thought is uh, Rhonda watches, every, she, she, my DVR is full with every show about Alaska that is on the tube, okay? That's how I fall asleep. It doesn't take long, okay? If you're a big Alaska fan, you've got a, you got a buddy, okay? But we, some of those things we watch... They get almost no day, and yet there's a day. So that's the second 
second meaning of it is a 24-hour period, the word day here, the second connotation of it. It could be the time that there's light in, in a 24-hour period. It could be talking about 24 hours, or it could be talking about a larger period of time. Look at 2-4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heaven. He didn't make it all in one day, one 24-hour period. None of us would probably say that. So there's, it's a larger, in, back in the, it's like you and I say, well, back in the day, okay, a larger period of time. So you've got um, several contexts from which to kind of uh, come at this. But the main emphasis is who, not how, that's only second in importance. Third in importance is when. And we're not going to get a whole lot of when. We'll get a little bit of how. But the main thing we're going to get is who. And that's really important to me. I think it's probably important to you. Now, um, so uh, there's an interesting thing that begins to happen here in verse 4 and verse 5. Notice that God names some things here. You catch that? What does he name? Parts of the day. Parts of the, he, he calls um, the light day. Right? Um, how, does, how does he say it here? He called the light day, calls the darkness night. How come God gets to do that? Because he made it. He made it. Right? Um, it's kind of the thought. If I, were gonna, if I had been smart enough, you remember when the, all the excitement, all the buzz was about what the guy was going to make when the segue was made? Remember that? It was like there was a there was a, a watch for that for several months. What's it going to be? What's it going to be? What's it going to be? And they came out with the Segway. What a funny name! I would have called it something. I would have called it a Snarf Flat. I don't know what I would call it, but he got to name it because he made it. He invented it. God gets to name the day because he made the day. He gets to name the night. Because he made the night. There's, there's some things here that unnamed things, the idea here, unnamed things don't even exist. So he gives them a name. There's no comparison here. Now, um, um, Galileo, who lived in the 1500s and 1600s, labored to calculate the speed of light, but his experiments fell short. He never could quite get there. Danish astronomer Olaus Romer is credited with successfully measuring the speed of light in 1676. Think about how early that is. That's incredible to me. Today, scientists calculate that light travels at 186,000 miles a second. Cosmic gamma rays, quantum gravity, black holes, all that stuff, while humans theorize to probe the origins of the universe. God is already there. God was saying, let there be light. He created light. He created it at speed, at the right speed. So notice here that we get this thought that God um, is naming the light. Now, I want us to read just a couple more verses. So go back with me to chapter 1. Let's go to 6. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So the idea here is, um, when you and I think about it, the waters have to be separated. And so he puts a, a dividing line between the sky and the water. And then verse 8, uh, verse 7, um, 
God made the expanse. Okay, so there's the sky, or they're called expanse here. Your Bibles, if you're reading the New International, may call it a vault. What you need to imagine here is when you go home today, put a, put a plate out, put a bowl over it. The bowl is the expanse, the vault, okay, uh, that separates uh, the earth from heaven. Okay, it's kind of the idea. And he calls it, he's asserting his ability to do this here. God made the expanse to separate the waters from which below, with the expanse of the waters which are above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. So he again asserts his authority here by naming heaven with sky. Now, verse 9 is a tricky question. How do you do this? God said, let the waters below, the heavens be gathered into one place, let the dry land appear, and it was so. Okay, so here's this globe. All you can see is blue. Now there's some brown and some green. How do you do that? He just said, I, I wrote in my notes, I kind of wrote it this way. At his command. God said, and it was so. It was just spoken. Verse 10, he's the creator of the seas. Um, uh, amazing when you spend time there. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Now there's an interesting thing that goes on here, uh, kind of a play on words in verse 10. The word seas is in Hebrew the word yam, and uh, there was a, there was a near um, an ancient Near East uh, god who was the god of water, and they called him yam. Isn't that interesting? But again, the contrast between what the world was saying about creation in those days and what the Bible says to us about the real thing, about what how it really really happened. There is a consistency in verse 11 and 12. You catch this. Look, look what it talks about, uh, things that, that, that are, are vegetation. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their, after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning, a third day. It's the idea that you don't plant a watermelon seed, and grow a cantaloupe. By the way, okay, I've got, I've got a mystery here. Rhonda buys, okay, help me with this, you, you agriculturists. Rhonda buys a seedless watermelon yesterday. Where do they come from? How do you get, if it's, from what? From sprouts? At 122nd MacArthur, that sprouts or the other? Okay, yeah. Uh, but isn't it interesting that you don't plant an avocado seed and get a peach tree? After their kind. Why? Karen, because God's orderly. He's got a pattern to all this. I read a story this week about the, uh, really, the uh, uh, physicist of all physicists, Sir Isaac Newton. He's um, talking with a friend who was an atheist. Newton was a believer. By the way, isn't that interesting? 
that the scientist in the room was a believer. The friend didn't believe in God, but he preferred to take the position that the universe just happened. One day, the friend was visiting his learned colleague, and Newton showed him a model of the solar system. He showed him the sun and the planets and the moons were all in place. The sizes of the spheres were in proportion, and the planets and the satellites, he had them arranged to kind of revolve around the sun at their relative speeds. He had a model. And the friend admired the model. It's intriguing, he said. Who made it? Nobody. It just happened. Aren't you and I, when we start trying to second-guess God in, in a similar position? Now, I, I, want, I want you to think with me about two viewpoints, okay? Two viewpoints as we close. There are really only two view, viewpoints regarding the ultimate source of all things. In one view, this is, by the way, your cosmology, okay? This is not cosmetology. Ask Walt about cosmetology. That's a different thing. This is cosmology. Your cosmology... Is what I, I just set you up for that, buddy. They're all going to ask you that, and you won't know what to say. I love it. Cosmology is what you believe about the origin of all things. Okay, so there's two options you've got. In one view, the ultimate source is eternally existing matter, the substance of which all things consist, impersonal, without a will or a purpose, doesn't possess or impose morals, it just happens. Or you adopt the view of the Bible, the other viewpoint is that the ultimate source of all things is a person. This person has qualities such as self-awareness, will, morality, the power to act. The difference is profound. In the universe of an impersonal God, there can be no absolute standards of right and wrong. By the way, does that sound familiar? In God's world, in God's world, he gets to say, you know, it'll go a lot better for you if you do it this way, because that's the way I've made it. Which way are you going to believe? I, I titled this series... Uh, because I love hymns. Okay, sorry. This is my father's world. Of rocks and trees and skies and seas. His hands, these wonders wrought. We're going to drill down on that. We'll start with verse 12 or 13, somewhere in there. And we'll talk about some of the other things that he did in those next creative days. I would invite you to kind of study, read chapter 1, maybe chapter 2, and get your mind around how the Bible presents this. But I'm more interested in you connecting with who did it. Who did it?